Well, it is great to see all of you here today, uh, especially since it's Time Change Sunday. I'm glad you made it. Uh, I'm not kidding. I had a dream last night that I overslept because of the time change, and I was late for my own sermon, which is not a pretty thing. So I'm glad we're all here today, and we not only had to deal with losing an hour of sleep, we also had to brave the coronavirus. And uh, in all seriousness, I just want to let you know, the the leadership here, we are looking at that situation very closely. We don't want to overreact, but we want to take it very seriously. So we are praying, uh, you know, really about worldwide uh, how people are being affected by this. And as in the coming days, as we're making decisions, if there is anything we have to do that's different than what we normally do, we'll get that information out as soon as possible through email or through Facebook. And if we don't have your email address, please stop by the Connection Cafe on your way out today, and we'll make sure you're up to date on everything that's happening. Well, I'm excited to get into the sermon this morning. For the past several weeks, we've been looking at stories where Jesus left people awestruck by something he said or something he did. And this morning, we're going to look at the most dramatic miracle in the ministry of Jesus. It's the story of Lazarus, the man Jesus brought back from the dead. You know, in my years of ministry, I've been around death on a fairly regular basis. I've seen people go through the process of dying. I've officiated a lot of funerals. And you may have noticed when a minister speaks at a funeral, there are certain verses and passages that you're pretty likely to hear. For me personally, I nearly always read the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I have to say, Psalm 23 is the most common passage I read But second place would probably go to John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. These two verses are in the middle of the story of Lazarus. In verse 25, Lazarus has already died, and Jesus is comforting his sister Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And when I'm at a funeral, that's the critical question. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Because if you do, that changes everything. That belief gives you a hope and a comfort that you can't find anywhere else. So this morning, we're going to look for that hope and that comfort in the story of Lazarus. For several months now, we've been on a journey through the life of Jesus in chronological order, and we've been drawing from all four of the gospel books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books are each biographies of Jesus, all told from different perspectives. And John is very upfront with his readers. He tells us exactly why he wrote this book. Toward the end of John's gospel, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs, many other miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, a lot of you know that John was one of the original 12 disciples. And so this is what John's saying here. He's saying, listen, 
I've seen with my own eyes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and I believe without a doubt he's the only one who can give you eternal life. So I want you to see what I've seen. I want you to believe what I've believed. He's writing not as someone who just heard about the miracles of Jesus, but as someone who was there. And he deeply wants us to believe in what he has written. So as we start reading the story of Lazarus, we'll see that John is communicating a very important message. He's telling us that Jesus has power over our most formidable enemy, the enemy of death. And you know, death comes in two forms. One is physical death. That's the moment where your soul leaves your body. But the other form is spiritual death. That's the state of being separated or cut off from God. Now, God doesn't want us to be separated from him, but that's what happens as a result of our sin. And God can't welcome a sinful person into his presence. And it's not because he doesn't love us, but it's because our sin would compromise his perfect character. So if we don't find a solution to our sin problem, we'll be separated from God for all of eternity. And that is a big problem. You know, in our lives, we often focus on things that feel like really big problems. For example, when I was in seventh grade, my girlfriend, Lori Schlievert, broke up with me. And at that time, it felt like a big problem. You see, things had been going really well between me and Lori. And then all of a sudden, she just threw this relationship away. I mean, we had been together for two weeks. That's two weeks of our lives wasted. It was a sad time, and it felt like a really big problem. Now, looking back, it's easy for me to say that wasn't a huge deal, but sometimes our problems really are big. Maybe you've lived through a financial crisis or a health crisis or a family crisis, and those things can be very serious and very painful. But let me tell you, nothing else compares to the problem of death. If you don't have some way to overcome physical and spiritual death, you are in very bad shape. Think about it. We're all going to die. We know that. And a lot of people believe that death is just the end. It's just lights out. You don't exist anymore. But look at the ramifications of that belief. If there is nothing beyond the grave, if there's no life after this life, That means your existence here has absolutely no meaning. Literally, nothing matters. And I've heard some people say, well, I'll just make the world a better place for everybody who comes after me. I'm sorry, but that doesn't help. Because our planet is on a countdown. One day, the sun will flame out and life on earth will be no more. So when that happens, who cares if you temporarily made the world a better place? But then there's another scenario that's even worse. If the grave is not the end and you still haven't solved that problem of spiritual death, then you do spend all of eternity completely separated from God, completely separated from every good gift that he gives. And you know, every good thing comes from God. So being apart from him forever, there's nothing worse than that. Nothing. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? 
I realize we're talking about some heavy stuff here. It is true, but it's also heavy. So we need to hear some good news, and that's why the story of Lazarus is so important. This story shows us that Jesus can overcome both physical and spiritual death. So let's dive in. If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along up on the screen. And before we start reading, I need to give you a little background. Jesus is in the third year of his three-year ministry. And he had been working up north in a place called Galilee. But now he's moved down south to the region of Judea. And Judea is where you find the city of Jerusalem. Now, one chapter earlier, in John 10, Jesus just survived an assassination attempt. He was teaching at the temple in Jerusalem, and some of the Jews just didn't like what he had to say. So they picked up some big rocks, and they were ready to stone him. Now, the problem is, you can't kill Jesus unless he lets you kill him. And it wasn't his time yet. So Jesus escapes with his disciples, and he leaves Judea, and he goes to the far side of the Jordan River. And that's where Jesus is when a messenger shows up with some bad news about his good friend Lazarus. The messenger says, Lazarus is sick. And he's not just nasty cough, take a day off of work kind of sick. It's more like intensive care, life support kind of sick. He's, he's going to die. And guess where Lazarus lives? He lives with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, in the village of Bethany. And Bethany is right smack in the middle of Judea. It's less than two miles from Jerusalem, where that assassination attempt had just taken place. So for Jesus to show up and help his friend, he would have to go back, walk straight into a very dangerous situation. Because a lot of people in that area want him dead. So what does Jesus do? Well, after he hears that Lazarus is sick, Jesus waits two days before he does anything. Now, from the outside, you might think that Jesus is a little nervous about going back into Judea, but the truth is, that's not the case at all. He's not scared. He's just setting the stage for a powerful miracle, a miracle that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. So Jesus is hanging out on the far side of the Jordan River, but what's happening back in Bethany? Well, it's a horrible scene. Mary and Martha watch their brother's health decline with every passing hour, and they feel completely helpless. They've already done everything they can do. They, they sent a messenger to go get Jesus, and he was the only real hope they had. I can picture them going up to the window and looking down the road to see if Jesus is coming, but he never comes. So Mary and Martha watch as the life slowly drains out of Lazarus's body. There are prayers and tears and painful goodbyes. The dying process continues until finally the unthinkable comes. Their brother is gone. It's too late. Jesus is too late. That's what they thought, but that wasn't true. Jesus is right on time. Somehow he knows from a distance that Lazarus has died, so he turns to his disciples and he says, now it's time to go to Bethany. And the disciples are like, Jesus, are you crazy? 
We, we just left Judea. We barely escaped with our lives. Why would we go back? And Jesus says, our friend Lazarus is dead. I will go back. And what I'm about to do will help you believe in me like never before. And this is where we'll pick up the story in John 11. The disciples get up and they march right back into danger. John 11 verse 17 says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus has, had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So did you catch that? Jesus has waited so long to go back to Judea, it's now four days after Lazarus has died. You may be familiar with the five stages of grief. The first stage is denial and shock. It's just hard to believe that your loved one is really gone. But you know what the second stage is? It's anger. You resent the fact that this terrible thing has happened, and you start to look for someone to blame. You might blame yourself, but you might also blame someone else. And to me, it looks like Jesus arrives just as the family is entering this second stage of grief. Let's read verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. That is a loaded statement, isn't it? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha is obviously upset, but we can see that she still has faith in Jesus, right? She says, you could have stopped this. You could have healed my brother. You've healed so many people, so why not Lazarus? Where were you? Some of us have asked God that very same question, haven't we? God, where were you? You had the power to help me. You, you could have prevented this pain that I'm going through right now. If you really love me, why didn't you do something? Where were you? And there could be all kinds of reasons we might ask that question. Maybe you had some big dreams that came crashing down into a pile of rubble. Maybe you were neglected or abused. Maybe someone very close to you got very sick. Maybe someone close to you died. And you know, death is especially tough to deal with because it's so final. We don't have the power to fix it or change it or turn back the clock. The person we love is gone, and it just seems so wrong. Recently, I've been thinking back to this time last year. In 16 days, it will be one year since my mom passed away. And I remember like it was yesterday. It was a Sunday, and I actually mentioned my mom in a sermon. I shared that she wasn't doing well, and I asked for prayer. And after church that day, I went straight to a funeral for a wonderful lady named Alta Ballou. Alta passed away at 90 years old. She was a member of Plum Creek, and she lived right here on Nagel Road, just across the street. But after the funeral, I drove home pulled into the driveway, and right then, I got a call from Dad. He told me the news. Mom had a heart attack, and she was gone. I'll never forget, I was standing in the backyard 
still wearing my black suit, and I was in complete shock. It just didn't seem real. It didn't seem possible, because my whole life, mom had always been there. She was such a strong person. In fact, you could call her a force of nature. For so long, she was so very alive, but all of a sudden, her life here was over. Death feels like such a violation of the way things should be. And even today, it it still feels so wrong. And that's exactly what we see in Martha. To her, this whole situation feels so wrong. So she asks Jesus, where were you? And we're about to see his answer. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Like many Jews at the time, Martha did believe that one day the dead would be resurrected. So naturally, when Jesus says that Lazarus will rise again, Martha's response is to look far off into the future. She says, yes, Jesus, I know that he'll rise from the dead, but that won't happen for years and years, maybe tens of thousands of years. Martha wants more than some promise about the distant future. She's looking for real comfort in the present. And that's exactly what Jesus has to offer. He goes on and he explains things more clearly. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? we're back to these verses that I often share at a funeral. And these words are powerful. This is not some generic funeral comment like, Lazarus is in a better place. No, Jesus submits himself as the solution against death. He does not claim to have power from God to raise people from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the source of that power. New life comes from me, and you don't have to wait for some distant future. The life I give is available right now. So what is Jesus doing? In the fog of Martha's sadness and grief and possibly anger, she needs to hear the truth. So Jesus speaks into her grief, and he says to her, don't look at the circumstances. Look at me. I'm the one you need right now. But how could he say that? Well, the only one who could really say these things is God himself. And that's exactly the claim that Jesus is making. He is compassionately and clearly calling Martha to embrace this truth that he is God. And now the ball's in Martha's court. After Jesus asks, do you believe this? She answers, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So she believes. Martha says, I see it. You're not just a miracle worker. You're not just a great teacher. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. But that's not all. You're not just one of God's servants. You are the Son of God. You are God in human form, God in the flesh. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, Martha's words may sound familiar. Do you remember who said something very similar to this? It was Peter, right? In Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This statement from Peter is called the great confession. 
It's what you say when you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Peter believed it. Martha believed it. And today, Jesus looks at you, and he looks at me, and he asks, do you believe it? But now let's shift over to Martha's sister, Mary. When Jesus arrives, Mary doesn't go out to meet him. She is so full of grief, she doesn't even leave the house. But Martha goes back and calls her sister, and Mary immediately runs out to see Jesus. Verse 32 says, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Where did we hear that before? It was back in verse 21. Mary repeats Martha's words verbatim. Really seems like over the past four days, these two sisters had been repeating these words over and over. Where was Jesus? Why wasn't he here? But there's a difference between Martha and Mary. Do you see it? Martha was looking for an explanation, but Mary just falls at his feet. She's too brokenhearted to have a real conversation. And Jesus sees that, and look at what he does. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We need to stop for a second and, and look at the meaning of these words. First, look at that phrase, deeply moved. That phrase is translated from the Greek word, imbrimaomai, and that word can refer to sadness, deep emotion, but it also has the connotation of anger. The original meaning of this word is to snort like a horse. I'm not saying that Jesus is snorting here, but it's safe to assume that he's not just sad, he's mad. We get the same idea from the word troubled in this verse. Uh, that comes from the Greek word terasso, which means to be stirred up or agitated. It's the word they would use to describe a violent sea in the middle of a great storm. So this is important. Remember what I said about death. Death is not just sad. It's not just surreal. Death is wrong. It's not how things are supposed to be. And that's what I love about this verse. When we feel like death is wrong, Jesus agrees. I find a lot of comfort in that, don't you? When we're angry and grieving over the injustice of death, Jesus is right there with us. Jesus went through those stages of grief, and he knows what we're going through. So when life is at its worst, Jesus is the best friend you could possibly have. Did you notice how Jesus relates to Martha and Mary in very different ways? In that first encounter, Martha's ready to have an argument. She's like, Jesus, I'm really trying to wrap my head around this, but it just doesn't make sense to me. So what does Jesus do? He gives her a clear theological explanation. Mary is different, though. Mary can't see past her broken heart. So how does Jesus respond? He responds to her emotion with his own emotions. He's full of righteous anger, but also grief and compassion. So you see, Jesus is the perfect counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. And when you look to him, he'll give you exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. Look at what he's done here. With Martha, 
Jesus responds with truth to show that he is God, but he doesn't use that approach with Mary. With Mary, he responds with love to show that he is human. He gives the perfect kind of comfort to each one of us based on our own individual needs. But let's keep reading. After Mary falls at his feet and Jesus feels all this emotion stirring up inside, he asks, where have you laid him? And the people around him say, come and see, Lord. And then we have these famous words in John eleven thirty five: 35. Jesus wept. Now, if you've never memorized any scripture and you'd like to give it a try, this is where you start. John eleven thirty five. 35. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. Just two words. Jesus wept. But these two simple words paint a powerful picture, don't they? Jesus is about to perform this amazing miracle, and he knows exactly what he's about to do. But first, he pauses for a moment to grieve, to weep, to acknowledge the fact that death is not what God wants for any of us. But now, the time has come. It's time for Jesus to go to work. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Now this is not pleasant to think about, but Martha's just telling it like it is. I love this verse in the old King James Version. In that translation, Martha says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. King James Bible came, back, came out way back in 1611, and I guess that's how they talked back then. They were like, ooh, what's that smell? That stinketh. But seriously, the idea of opening this tomb would have been repulsive to Martha and the rest of the family. In Jewish culture, disturbing a grave was extremely offensive. And on top of that, it's too late. What could Jesus do now? In the first century, there was a Jewish belief that said when someone died, their soul would hover around the body for three days. But we're at the fourth day since Lazarus died, right? So that means his soul, his spirit is really gone. We're at the point of no return here. But that's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants everyone to see that this miracle he's about to perform is no mere resuscitation. It's going to be a true resurrection. So right after Martha points out that Lazarus stinketh, Jesus says, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, do you remember what John said about the purpose of this book? He said, these things are written so that you may believe. And what does Jesus say here? He says, I'm praying out loud right now so that these people may believe. John and Jesus are on the same page. They're they're working together to present the evidence that Jesus really is the resurrection and the life. And that evidence comes to life in the very next verse, verse 43. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, 
his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Without a doubt, this is a moment where everyone present was awestruck. The people watching expected nothing but a horrible smell. But all of a sudden, here's Lazarus. He's alive again. The dead man is no longer dead. He's walking out of the tomb. Actually, we should probably say he was hopping out of the tomb. Did you notice that? Um, his hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen. So I kind of picture him hopping and stumbling around, which would actually be dangerous, right? He might fall and hit his head and die again. So Jesus says, take off those grave clothes. This brother is alive. Can you imagine what it was like to be there, to witness this miracle? I'm sure that Mary and Martha sprinted over to Lazarus. I'm sure they embraced and laughed and cried tears of joy. These two sisters, they had been through so much grief and sorrow. But what happens to all of that sorrow when Lazarus leaves the tomb? It all disappears in an instant. All of the pain of the past is swallowed up in the joy of the present. And you know, if you have given your life over to Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, that same thing will happen to you. For everyone in Christ, there will be a day when all of our grief is forgotten because it's swallowed up in joy. But that day has not arrived yet, has it? Every time I tell this story, there's something I have to point out. As great as this miracle was, we still have a problem. Because what if you wanted to stop by and see Lazarus today and get this story firsthand and maybe hear some of the details that John didn't tell us in his book? Well, you're out of luck, aren't you? You can't go see Lazarus. Why? Because he died again. <laughs> his resurrection was only a temporary solution because we're not meant to live in this world forever. Now, there is some value in a temporary resurrection. Mary and Martha and lots of others were very grateful, I'm sure, but this great miracle doesn't quite solve our greatest problem. Jesus was well aware of our greatest problem, which is not just physical death, but also spiritual death. He knew about our sin. He knew that our sin had severed our relationship with God. And he knew that if we die in our sins, the punishment would be eternal death, separation from God forever in hell. And that's why Jesus came to earth. Because of his great love for us, Jesus came to do something about our biggest problem, not just physical death, but spiritual death. And he knew there was only one way for us to escape that death sentence. The only way was for him to die in our place to take the punishment that we deserve. And there's a surprising twist in this story. When Jesus lays, raises Lazarus, he takes a huge step toward his own death. At the end of John chapter 11, the Jewish religious leaders are just fuming over what Jesus has done because they've been trying to stop Jesus, but how do you stop a man who raises the dead? So it says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life by bringing his dear friend Lazarus back to life, Jesus signed his own death warrant. 
He did it knowingly and willingly, and he did it for you and for me. Jesus loved you enough to die for you. And he finished the work. He accomplished his mission. Jesus paid the price for your sins. And if you have not accepted his work, if you have not turned to him in faith to receive the gift of salvation that he offers, then you are still in line to take that punishment. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus wants all of us to believe in him and let him break the power of death. So that's the story of Lazarus. It's a great story. But in a few weeks, we'll celebrate something even better. The resurrection of Lazarus is the most dramatic miracle in the ministry of Jesus. But the resurrection of Jesus himself is the most dramatic miracle in the history of the world. This is where Jesus proves once and for all that death has no power over him. And because he came back to life, we know that he is able to bring us back to life. He is the resurrection and the life. So let me ask you again, do you believe this? I think about those times when I read from John 11 at a funeral, and it's so good when I can talk about the person who died and say, yes, he believed this. Yes, she believed this. And when I can say that, I then have the confidence to say, this person is with Jesus right now. This person will spend eternity in heaven. This person is more alive today than ever before. So I'll be honest here. I hope I never have to speak at your funeral. But in case I do, I want you to think about what I would say. Based on everything we've seen in your life, based on the work of God's Holy Spirit in you and through you, would I be able to say with confidence, yes, he believed this. Yes, she believed. I'm going to wrap up by going back to those words from Martha and Simon Peter. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you believe that, will you repeat those words with me out loud all together? Say it with me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's powerful. But you know, there are people in the world today who will be persecuted for speaking these words. There are people who will die because they refuse to deny this truth. So if you are truly staking your past and your present and your future on Jesus as the resurrection and the life, let's say this one more time, loud and strong. I believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. That's great. You know, it's possible that someone here just said those words and meant it for the very first time. And if that's the case, please talk to one of us before you leave here today. We'd love to come alongside you and help you begin a life-changing relationship with Jesus. But for a lot of us here, we've already made this confession. And we can walk out of this place with confidence that Jesus has given us victory over death, our most formidable enemy. We have eternal life in him. And just like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, we don't have to wait for it. Because if you belong to Jesus, eternal life begins in the present, and then it continues forever into the future. That's real comfort. That's real hope. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for good news. There is so much bad news around us, and there are lots of things that uh, we can fear, and death is at the top of that list. But God, I thank you that we don't have to be afraid because you are for us. You've made it possible for us to have victory over death, physical and spiritual. You've made it possible for us to literally laugh in the face of death. So Lord, I pray that you will make it clear to us this promise that is available. And for all of us who have claimed that promise, help us to walk in confidence, to walk in victory. And I pray that others will see that and they'll be drawn to you. Lord, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.